Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah 11. We've been working through this minor, minor prophet. It's there at the tail end of the Old Testament, the next, next to the last book there in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 11. We come this morning to, uh, to the end of, we talked about this before, but the beginning of the book starts out with these multiple visions that are given to Zechariah. The end of the book are these oracles, which are just sort of like the Lord giving these, these important uh, messages to his people. Well, Zechariah 11 is the end of the first oracle, and then chapter 12 picks up with the second oracle and works its way to the, the end of the letter in, in chapter 14. So Zechariah chapter 11, it's page 750, if you're looking at one of our hardback Bibles there in the pew. It'll be helpful if you've got a copy of God's Word open. And then uh, there's a, a bare bones outline that's there in the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to look at as, as we move along with the main points. <clears throat> Zechariah 11, 1 through 17. Um, around Christmas time, you'll, you'll oftentimes hear people talk about the, the goodness of people. So uh, it's interesting in our culture, people will use Christmas time to kind of, they think they're trading on the fact that there's goodness inside of people. And that all we need is something to leverage that goodness, to kind of bring it out. And the way a lot of people talk about Christmas time is it does just that. Okay, here's Christmas time. That'll help us to be the good people like, like we know we can be and that's inside of us. So kind of like let this time of year in, inspire us. So the coming of Christ should be leveraged to bring out the best in us. I think that's kind of the main message that you hear in the culture when it comes to Christmas time, how that should affect us, us our, our lives in general. But it's interesting, what we see in our passage this morning is that God actually did the exact opposite of, of the thing that I just described. So, so he brought his perfect shepherd into the world. He brought Christ into this world, not to bring, bring the best out of us, and there's, there's not really much good in us to, to begin with. No, he, he brought the shepherd into the world actually to bring the worst out in us so that he could save us. That's why the good shepherd was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Well, our passage, it's a bit of a departure from what's gone before in, in Zechariah. So, so far in the book of Zechariah, God's been making all sorts of promises to his people. Promises about the place he's going to take them one day. So the heavenly city, Jerusalem, how good that place is going to be. There's not going to be any sin there. So he's talking about all of these good promises he has for them, that he's going to rule them, his perfect rule over them in his place for, for all eternity. But, but see, here in this passage, there's a bit of a change. In Zechariah 11, God makes promises about the future, but it's promises about judgment. So he's not talking about the good things that are coming. He's talking about some bad things that are coming. Judgment for sin. So in verse 4, he says, the flock is doomed for slaughter. And he's talking about his people. He's saying that judgment is coming on his people. Now, there's, there's something that's a little bit difficult about this passage. Commentators are, are divided here. The judgment that God describes in, in Zechariah chapter 11 he may be describing something that has already happened. So you remember the Assyrians came in and they sacked the Northern Kingdom. And then the Babylonians came in, they sacked the Southern Kingdom of God's people. Well, that was judgment because of their sin that God had sent. 
he could be retelling those events sort of in a poetic way. So talking about it with future language, but it's really intended to remind them about the judgment of God that, that's already happened. Or what seems a little bit more likely to me, he could be pointing ahead to the judgment that would come later on in Israel's history in 70 AD in particular, which is when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But in any event, the good news for us is whether Zechariah 11 is pointing his people back or whether it's pointing them forward, the main lessons for us are the same. And we're going to see four of them. And these are listed there in the worship guide, the four main points here that, that I think we see from this sermon. So first, God's patience with sin doesn't last forever. It's the first thing we're going to see. Second, God is tougher on shepherds than he is on sheep. It's the second thing. Third, God wants his people to come to him for shepherding. Kind of fits with the second. It's the reverse of that, sort of. And then finally, God uses mankind's rejection of the shepherd to save mankind, which is this crazy sort of counterintuitive reversal that happens with the gospel. It's the last thing we'll look at. But, but first, let's go through the narrative part of this passage because it's a bit unique, Zechariah 11 is. God gives Zechariah things to say, that's what he usually does with prophets, right? He gives them his word and then they speak it. But Zechariah 11 is a little bit unique because just like we celebrated the Lord's Supper, Zechariah 11, God gives the prophet this action to act out. So this symbolism, this sort of moving picture. So it's not just words he's speaking. Zechariah is actually going to act out something for the people. In verse 4, God tells him to become a shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. God's not talking about that in a figurative way. No, he actually literally has Zechariah put on shepherd's clothes and pick up the tools of a shepherd. Now, we know it's, it's ultimately symbolic <clears throat> because God's people are people and they're not sheep. So the way that you shepherd people isn't with like a shepherd's crook, right? So way you shepherd sheep. So there's some symbolism here. But, but he is telling Zechariah to put on these clothes and to show that symbolically he's taking the role of a leader for God's people, a provider, a protector, just like shepherds are for sheep. That's what Zechariah is acting out, that he can be for the people. And, and God makes it clear that the flock of his people is headed for judgment. They're doomed for slaughter, like verse 4 says. So, so Zechariah, he does what the Lord says. He dresses the part. But, but the message is there's nothing Zechariah can do to save these people. So he dresses up like a shepherd, like, hey, I can shepherd you, but God makes it clear, but you're not going to be able to actually shepherd these people. They really are doomed for, for slaughter. Look at verse 6. Zechariah says, for I will no longer have, or the Lord speaking through him, I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land declares the Lord. So we see the hard-heartedness of the people because even though Zechariah aims to be a good shepherd, he even destroys some of the bad shepherds in the middle of this passage. Even though he does that, the people still end up rejecting Zechariah. So in verse 8, we're told the people detested Zechariah. So they're, they're rejecting the, the Lord's shepherd. In fact, they end up sort of paying him off to leave them. So in verse 12, they pay him off with, with 30 pieces of silver. So they don't want anything to do with God shepherding them. And God knew that's where their hearts were. 
That's why these people were doomed to be slaughtered. Zechariah makes that clear to the people in verse nine. Look there. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. So, so ultimately, God's judgment is coming on his people because of their rejection of him and their rejection of the shepherds that he sends to them. But, but then our passage, it ends on a, a bit of a note of hope because God has Zechariah dress up one more time like a shepherd, but this time he has him dress up like a bad shepherd, a, a foolish shepherd, we're told in verse 15. And, and this oracle, it ends with God saying that he'll judge this bad shepherd who hurts the sheep. So it does end on this note of hope. Look at verse 17. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Okay, so that's kind of the narrative part of this passage. That's, that's what's happening. God has Zechariah dress up like a shepherd, talk to the people, they reject him. Then God has him dress up like a bad shepherd at the end. God promises he's going to judge the bad shepherd. But in between, he also promises he's going to judge his people for their sin of, of rejecting him. So let's get to the, the meat of this passage. What's the Lord teaching us through Zechariah 11 here this morning? Well, again, the first thing is that God's patience with sin doesn't last forever. God's patience with sin doesn't last forever. The first three verses in our passage are, are a Hebrew poem, but they, right off the bat, were reminded that God's patience with sin doesn't last forever because they're a picture of God judging and punishing sin, which by definition isn't patience. So his patience doesn't last forever, not with sin. Look at this poem, verse one and following. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cypress, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Okay, both the lands that are mentioned there, Lebanon and Bashan, they were considered part of the promised land. They'd been considered part of the promised land for a long time, back, back to Joshua and his conquest. And, and these were prized places among God's people, mainly because of the natural resources that they contained that are spoken about here. So the huge trees and the gardens and the lush forests. Well, God is, is saying that he's coming to destroy these places. The places that Israel holds dear God's going to come in and destroy them. And why is that? Well, we know the Bible teaches start to finish that, that God judges sin. The only time he punishes anybody is because of sin. But, but then we also see it explicitly that it's because of their sin over in verse 10. So in the course of dre dressing up like a uh, shepherd, God tells Zechariah to take two staffs and he gives each of them a, a name while he acts like a, a, a shepherd. Well, one of the staffs Zechariah is told to hold is representative of the Mosaic covenant. That covenant that God gave through Moses when Moses comes down the mountain and brings the law to God's people. We could also call it the law covenant. That's what that staff is representative of. It's called favor, the name he gives to it. Look at verse 10. He says, and I took my staff favor and I broke it. 
annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. Well, that language of the covenant being annulled, or it could be translated broken, the way that he breaks that staff, it's the exact same language God had used to warn his people what would happen if they continued in unrepentant sin. So listen to this. This is a warning God gave Israel all the way back in Leviticus. This is Leviticus 26, verse 14. He says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but if you break, if you annul, if you break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. So God had warned his people for a long time now. If you guys continue in unrepentant sin, that's going to break this covenant between me and you. The Mosaic covenant, the law covenant, it will be broken if you guys continue in rebellion against me. And when sinners do that, that, that's exactly what we deserve, isn't it? We deserve judgment when we sin. In fact, in our passage, one description of God's judgment is God just letting the sin of his people bring its natural consequence. Because it's, it's what we deserve. And that's the picture we're given here. Look at verse 6. He says, For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So the picture here, it's, it's not as much God bringing the hand of judgment. It's much more God removing his hand of protection. It's, it's more of a passive action by the Lord. He's just pulling back, and then he's going to let the people do this to one another. The leaders do it to the people, and the people do it to, uh, to one another. Look at what the Lord has Zechariah do in verse 9, after becoming the, the people's shepherd. They were told, so I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. I could go home today and I could light our Christmas tree on fire, which I'm not going to do because I love our Christmas tree, love all Christmas trees. I could kill the tree in that way, or I could just quit watering the tree. There's two ways to kill it, right? The judgment God is talking about here, the angle he comes at it with, isn't that he's going to come and destroy the people. The picture he gives here is he's just going to quit watering the tree. He's going to let the people do what they want to one another. He's going to let them pursue sin in that way. Listen to the way that, that Jonathan Edwards, who's an 18th century New England pastor, listen to the way he talks about this. He says, he that stands or walks on slippery ground needs nothing but his own weight to throw him down. And that's true about our sin, isn't it? That's all we need. If, if we want to uh, descend into sin and destruction, all that has to happen is God has to remove his hand. He doesn't have to actively do anything because that sin is, is in our own hearts. So in our passage, we see God pulling back his mercy and the people's own sin makes them fall. Their, their own sin begins the destruction. So as neighbors, they, they attack one another. 
In fact, look at what Zechariah's breaking of a second staff in verse 14 is meant to symbolize. Verse 14, he says, Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So remember, there had been this split. After Solomon was the king, the kingdom split. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And they were sort of opposed to one another, right? Going back and forth for, for hundreds of years. Well, the Lord is saying that part of his judgment against them is they won't regain peace with one another. Those kingdoms will remain divided. And this is important to be reminded about during the Christmas season. People talk about wanting peace between men. That's a good promise that we have in the gospel. We sing about that. Non-believers, because they're created in the image of God, they have that longing as well. We want peace between people, between nations, between individuals. But, but real peace between men can only come when there's peace with God. Real peace between people can only come when there's peace between God. I think we see that even in the Ten Commandments. So the first set of commandments is about man's relationship with the Lord. And only after those commandments do we get to commandments about our relationship with one another. We see the opposite, the bad version of it in Genesis. So in Genesis 3, peace is destroyed between God and man because of the fall of man. What happens in Genesis 4? Cain and Abel. So when peace is disrupted between God and man, then all of a sudden, Peace is radically disrupted between men and other men, between people. So in our passage, when, when the staff representing the covenant between God and his people is broken, that's the first staff, then the staff representing any potential peace between people, it's going to be broken too. So in verse 6, the people are attacking one another and, and the leaders are attacking the people. The point is that God lets them have what their sin deserves what it's naturally bringing to them. And we deserve the same thing. We deserve the kinds of judgment that we read about here in this passage. We're, we're all sinners. We've all turned away from the commands of the Lord. We've done the opposite thing of what the Lord created us to do. But just think about how many times this past week you did the exact opposite of what God has told you to do in his word. Isn't that crazy? There's so many. We can't even log all of them. All of us have done that. Think about the number of times you had the opportunity to love somebody sacrificially, but you resisted. You said, I'm not going to take that opportunity because that'd be hard. I'd rather, rather just do my own thing. Think about the number of times that, that you did that, the number of times I did that. Think about the times you got sinfully worried about something, even though the Lord tells you, do not be anxious. Think about the times you complained and I complained instead of trusting the Lord with our circumstances. So when we were driving through Asheville and sitting in traffic on the way to Kentucky and on the way home from Kentucky, I was not trusting the Lord with our circumstances. I was complaining. Think about how often we do that. We deserve the kind of judgment we read about here. We're sinners. So this is how verses one through three set up our passage. Judah, the southern kingdom, is being judged for their sin. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. God had had pity on his people up to a point, but look at what he says in verse six. 
For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. God's patience had run out. And it was now time for judgment. Middle of verse 6. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. Now, again, it could be a picture of a previous judgment. It could be pointing forward to the destruction of Jerusalem, seems like the most likely contender by the Romans in, in 70 AD. But in either event, God's patience with Israel's sins eventually ran out. And God's patience with sin will run out. It doesn't go on forever. The sentence I just said is a terrifying sentence. God's patience with sin will run out. It doesn't go on forever. Remember how God revealed himself to Moses in our call to worship. Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, so God is slow to anger, but he's not without anger. He's just slow to anger. He, he offers forgiveness, but for those who refuse to come to him, he will by no means clear the guilty. God's patience with sin doesn't last forever. Like the Johnny Cash song says, sooner or later, God will cut you down. That's true. And that's what the Lord is signaling here. His, his people are his people. He loves them, but their unrepentant sin has gone on long enough. Okay, so what does that mean for us? On the ground, practically, what's it mean for us? Well, it means we've got to take our sin seriously. We've got to take our sin seriously. So, so if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've got to understand that. You've got to understand with as gracious as the Lord is, and he is more gracious than you can imagine, he won't put up with your sin forever. He won't let it go forever. A day is coming when he will say enough. And that's the day when Jesus will return to judge his enemies. And like our passage says in verse 9, that day will be a day of death and destruction and flesh being devoured for God's enemies. God's patience with sin doesn't last forever. So put your faith and hope in Christ. He, he's the only way to get out from under God's judgment is to put your hope and trust in Christ alone. De decide to turn your heart away from your sin and to pursue Jesus for your salvation. Repent and believe in Jesus. Talk to me about that if you're willing to. T talk to one of the other elders. Talk to a member of this church. God's patience doesn't last forever. Christ is the only way to get out from under the judgment we deserve. Verse one, open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. And even for us as believers, there's a way that God's patience with our sin doesn't last forever. Now, praise God, he won't deal with you like a judge deals with a guilty person, but he will deal with you like a father deals with an unruly child. He will bring his fatherly discipline. And if you keep pursuing a particular sin headlong with no repentance, if I as a Christian keep pursuing a particular sin headlong with no repentance, his patience will run out. 
Like we said in our congregational reading from Romans 2, God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance. Here's the way Numbers 32 verse 23 says it. Your sin will find you out. That's a terrifying verse, isn't it? But it's true. It's just another way of saying what we see here in our our passage with the people of Judah. God's patience with sin doesn't last forever. So for us as Christians, we need to turn from our sin. That's the upshot for us. We need to turn from our sin. That starts with identifying our sin. We have to be thoughtful about that. We have to identify it, especially habitual sins, sins that, that are patterns for us that we keep falling into. Identify those. So after the service, if a fellow member comes up to you and says, hey, what are a couple habitual sins that you struggle with? You should really be able to rattle them off, right? We should be familiar with the particular sins that we struggle with regularly. So so identify them. And then once you've identified a sin like that, pray for God's help to more often help you to turn from that sin. And then go to God's word to meditate on verses that speak about that sin in particular. So do those sorts of things. But But then finally, don't stop there. What our culture isn't great at, but in the church we should be really good at, then confess that sin to a fellow church member who you trust, who you know will pray for you, and maybe even help hold you accountable, ask you about that sin every now and then. We're we're given the body of Christ for a reason, to reach out for for help. You know, we're, we're very quick to ask prayer for our physical needs, Let's be more quick to ask for prayer for our spiritual needs, which are infinitely more significant and important than our physical needs. And all of this is important because, again, God's patience with sin doesn't last forever. But there's a, there's a second principle we see articulated clearly when it comes to God's judgment, and that is God is tougher on shepherds than he is on sheep. So most of you are about to get a little bit of a reprieve, and you can be thankful that right now me and Charlie and Mark and Tim are the ones that have to feel more weight than the rest of you. God is tougher on shepherds than he is on sheep. Look at verse four. Thus says the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. The Lord tells Zechariah to dress up like a shepherd because the people need a good shepherd. Look again at how their current shepherds were treating them. Verse 5, those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. So their leaders were exploiting the people of God. For, for the gain of the leaders. The shepherds were bad shepherds. And once Zechariah becomes a shepherd to the people, look at what he has to do. Verse 8, in one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. Now, we don't know who these three shepherds are. We don't know if this is symbolic. But the whole point is that they had bad shepherds. The people had bad leaders. Look at the prophecy the Lord gives about this future shepherd. Verse 16, For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. These descriptions of Israel's bad shepherds, they're supposed to elicit a response in us. Look at the response they elicit from the Lord. Verse 17, 
Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. God does not like bad shepherds. He does not like bad shepherds. And that's why he's going to punish them. And the reason is because God loves his people, right? He's upset with bad shepherds because he loves his sheep. So God is angry about this. And we understand that, right? How do you feel when you hear about a parent who exploits their child? That elicits anger in us. Same type of thing. That's why God gets angry when a shepherd exploits his sheep. And that's why most of the harshest language in scripture is reserved for bad shepherds, for bad leaders. Now, when the Lord, when he talks about shepherds for his people, he's using that as a metaphor for, for the human leaders of his people. That's why the leaders of New Testament churches aren't only called elders or overseers, although we are. They're also called pastors, which is a synonym for, for shepherds. And the main way pastors are called to shepherd God's people is, is by teaching. That's why elders have to be able to teach, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So the way God intends for his people to be led is through teaching. So when you see false teachers in the New Testament, those are like false shepherds. They're, they're shepherding God's people in, in a bad way. And again, the, the harshest language in scripture is for bad shepherds. That's why almost all of Matthew 23 is taken up with those seven woes against the Pharisees, because they were the leaders of God's people, and they were bad shepherds. That's why Paul has such harsh words for the false teachers around the Galatian churches. Remember, that's why he says, I wish those who unsettle you with their false teaching would emasculate themselves. So God is tougher on shepherds than he is on sheep. It's a good reminder for the four of us that are elders in this church. Like we're taught in James chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Why? For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Shepherds are charged with, with taking care of the sheep, and when we don't do that job well, God's anger with us will be unique. It'll be ratcheted up. Shepherds will be judged with greater strictness. So the, the elders here, we should pastor for the good of the sheep. That's a serious call for us as, as elders, as, as pastors. But there's another application here for, for all of us, elder and non-elder. And that is that bad shepherds should make us angry. So as Christians, we always want to think God's thoughts after him, right? The way God thinks about something, we want to think about that thing the same way. And the way God feels about something, we want our feelings to match God's feelings because he, he does everything right. He feels everything right. He thinks everything right. Well, God gets angry with bad shepherds, and we should too. We should get angry with bad shepherds. So when we hear about a pastor who has abused people in his church community, that should make us angry. When we hear about an elder who has embezzled money, that should make us angry. When we hear about a preacher who says Jesus' one-time sacrifice isn't good enough, so he needs to be re-sacrificed in the Lord's Supper every time the church takes it, thereby cutting the legs out from under the sufficiency of Christ, that should make us angry. 
Verse 5 in our passage, those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. And we should praise God when it comes to the fact that bad shepherding one day will merit him saying enough. Verse 17, woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. God is tougher on shepherds than he is on sheep. And our next point fits perfectly with that one, which is God wants people to come to him for shepherding. He wants his people to have good shepherding. He wants his people to come to him for shepherding. In fact, if, if you just read Zechariah 11 over and over again, I think that's the theme that would most stand out is the lengths the Lord is going to, to try to get his people to come to him for shepherding. Because at this point in Zechariah, God's been shepherding his people perfectly for a thousand years. And how had they responded? With sin, with rejection, with rebellion, right? Remember, that's what the picture of Zechariah breaking that staff called failure or called favor. That's what that picture is about in verse 10. God's annulling the old covenant because his people have broken it time and time again. But even though that's the case, God still raised up Zechariah and sent him to his people to try to shepherd them. Isn't that incredible? What a wild thing. They'd rebelled for a thousand years, and he is still sending them shepherds. Why? Because God wants his people to come to him for shepherding. He wants them to come to him for shepherding. What do we find God doing at the end of our passage, even after his people have rejected him and his shepherding through Zechariah? What's well, a picture of him judging bad shepherds? He's still pursuing them. Why? Because he wants his people to come to him for shepherding. God wants to shepherd you. Isn't that wild? God wants to shepherd you. When you're experiencing suffering, he wants to comfort you. He wants you to come to him because he wants to comfort you. When you're struggling with sin, he wants to direct you in the right way. When you're tempted to put your ultimate hope in the things of this world, to let the, the stuff of this world shepherd you, he, he's calling you to put your hope in him. That's a big reason why as Christians we read the Bible, isn't it? It's one of the chief ways God shepherds us. It's through Bible reading. That's why it's so significant that as Christians we're in the Bible every day, reading the word. He, he provides for you. He protects you through his word. So we should be in, in the Bible. That's why it's like I mentioned earlier, good to pick up a, a devotional off the bookshelf if you think that would help you to get in that rhythm of reading the Bible every day. God wanted to shepherd his people in Zechariah 11, and he wants us to come to him for, for shepherding too. But the culmination of God's shepherding, it wouldn't happen for another 500 years after Zechariah is prophesying. Listen to Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. He's quoting the prophet Micah, we're familiar with this verse. It fits with Christmas time. It's what we're told, Matthew 2, 6. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So God sent his greatest shepherd to Bethlehem 500 years after Zechariah. And that's what Christmas time was, was designed to celebrate. And to get us to think about is that shepherd. So that, that future shepherd of God's people is prophesied about here at, at the tail end of our passage 
by way of the experience of Zechariah. You may have already picked up on it as we read the verse a couple of times. So, so remember how Zechariah, how he breaks the two staffs. Well, look at what happens after he breaks the first one. Look at verse 11 in our passage. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Okay, so Zechariah had dressed the part of the shepherd. He had aimed to actually shepherd God's people, to provide for them, to protect them. But ultimately, the people rejected Zechariah as their shepherd. So look back at verse 8. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them. And they, the people, they also detested me. So Zechariah came to, to tell the people how they might be saved by turning to the Lord. But did they love him for that? No, they hated him for it. And so they sent him away. They, they pay him what they think it will take to get him to leave. It's almost like a, a buyout for a coach, right? There's a coach who's bad, but he's got a buyout in his contract. But you think that coach is so bad, you're willing to pay him those millions of dollars to get him to leave. That's what's happening here. They pay Zechariah what they think will be enough to get him to go. Verse 12 again, Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. Well, this story in the life of Zechariah was always meant to point God's people forward. It's pointing them forward to the rejection of an even greater shepherd. So if you've got a Bible open as we close, flip over to Matthew 26. It's page 781 if you've got one of our hardback Bibles there in front of you. Matthew 26. And listen to one of the events that happens at the end of Jesus's earthly life. This is Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So for Judas and for Israel's religious leaders, it would cost 30 pieces of silver to finally get rid of Jesus, a price that they were all thrilled to pay. They were happy to pay that price. But, but here's the most incredible part of our passage. It's our final point this morning. God uses mankind's rejection of the shepherd to save mankind. By the end of the Gospels, it, it had become clear that the world by and large had rejected Jesus. So in John 15, verse 18, Jesus says, the world hates me. Throughout the New Testament, he's called the stone that was rejected by you. Jesus was rejected by the world, right? He, he's God's best shepherd, the one that 1 Peter 5 calls our senior pastor. We looked at that a few weeks ago, our senior shepherd, God's own son. God had sent him to us 
and we, we rejected him. And in fact, mankind's rejection of Jesus was so wholehearted that we murdered him. We, we took his life. But see, that was always God's plan. That was God's plan from the beginning. Isn't that an incredible thing? God's plan from the beginning of time was for him to give up his own son to be rejected by the world and, and then murdered on a cross. That's why in Acts 4, verse 28, the Christians in Jerusalem could say, in this city in Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God's plan was for his son to be rejected by the world, for the good shepherd to be rejected by the sheep. And just like we see 500 years earlier in Zechariah 11, where Zechariah is rejected by the people. Now, why did God plan for that? Why is that part of the plan? Well, it's because it, it was necessary for salvation. Sin had to be paid for. The only way for, for us to be saved from God's holy wrath against sin is, is for a man to stand in our place and to offer his perfect life in our place and to suffer the punishment we deserve. That's exactly what Jesus did. It's the entire reason he came. Like John 10 verse 11 says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So God knew that just like Israel rejected Zechariah, we would reject the greater shepherd we would reject Jesus. But, but see, he built his gospel around that truth. If we hadn't rejected Jesus, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. And if he hadn't gone to the cross, then we would still be in our sins. So you can see the incredible wisdom of the Lord, the incredible grace of the Lord. God uses mankind's rejection of the shepherd to save mankind. There can be no news greater than the gospel. Matthew 26, 14 again. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So the religious leaders, they paid 30 pieces of silver to get rid of Jesus. God paid the life of his son to get rid of our sin. Praise God for the good news of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for what we see here in Zechariah 11. This theme that is woven throughout scripture that points ahead to our Savior, wherein people in our sin will reject your shepherding. And as you sent shepherd after shepherd throughout the Old Testament, we rejected them sinners said no and father that culminates with the good shepherd our chief shepherd jesus christ who when the world saw him rejected him and murdered him on a cross but father our salvation was bound up in that plan and in that rejection because through our rejection of the shepherd our sins were paid for we're so thankful father for the good news of the gospel we pray that we would always put our hope in this good shepherd. And Father, we would follow him for our good and your glory and the good of your kingdom. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.